asking questions and in order to indicate that you'd like to ask a question if you could um, use the raise hand function which you will find at the bottom of the participants list so if you if you're not familiar with zoom if you have a look along the bottom um, underneath where you can see the images of people here tonight there's a panel at the bottom and you'll see all sorts of little icons and one of them is called participants and if you click on that you'll see the names of everyone in the meeting and if you scroll right down to the bottom there should be a function there which says raise hand okay so um oh and just finally i'd like to give apologies from haringey councillors uh, for tonight's meeting many of them had indicated that they were planning to attend and then unfortunately um, we had a last minute change of date for an important meeting which they had to attend this evening so unfortunately we haven't got any of our Haringey councillors with us this evening. So the theme of this evening's meeting is promoting a green recovery and as the UK, UK deals with the double whammy of COVID-19 and Brexit there couldn't be a more important issue for us to be discussing. As the UK economy struggles to recover, support for a green recovery in we, which we build back better and build back in a more sustainable way is growing all the time. However, we have a Tory government which lacks both the vision and the political will to adopt the measures that will be necessary for that recovery. So what should a truly green recovery entail? And how can Labour build the broadest possible support for measures that combine good employment, social justice and well-being within an overall strategy to tackle the climate and ecolo ecological emergencies? So these are the issues that we will be discussing tonight. And we have an eminent panel to, um, to talk us through some of these issues. And then, as I said, we'll take some questions and then we'll have some summing ups. We will aim to end the meeting at eight o'clock. So just to let the speakers know the order, I'm going to call you in a minute. I'm going to take Matthew first, followed by Dimitri, then we'll have Joe, followed by David, followed by Becca. So let me introduce Matthew Pennycook MP first of all. So Matthew has been the MP for Greenwich and Woolwich since May 2015. He was previously a Labour councillor for Greenwich West from 2010 to 2015. He was Shadow Brexit Minister until September 2019 before being appointed by Keir Starmer in April of this year as Shadow Minister in the Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy Group. And he's got um, a particular responsibility for climate change. Um, so welcome, Matthew. We're very pleased that you're with us tonight and the floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Celia. It's a pleasure to, to join you all this evening. Um, I, I think we're probably um, running slightly behind schedule and, I, and I, I really do want to hear Dave, Joe and Dimitri's contribution. So I'll try and be as brief as I can and, and hopefully we, we can get into the discussion. Um, I wanted to kind of speak to four points um, if I can. The first is, and I think it's, it's important to do this, but to remind ourselves, you know, why we need a green recovery uh, and the bigger picture. I then want to talk about, in a sense, how we judge what is a successful green recovery from our point of view. 
um, and, and how we set the test for the government in that regard. Thirdly, I'm just going to touch on how I think we can pressure the government and, and why the present moment in, uh, offers us lots of possibilities to do that. And, then, and, and finally, I just want to finish on how we build support, uh, not only in Parliament, but outside Parliament, uh, for, for not only a green recovery, but bold climate action in the, in the years ahead in what remains of this crucial decade. So, so firstly, why is it important? I and, and probably don't need to tell all of you this, but, but the climate and environment emergency is the existential challenge of our time. It will be with us long after the coronavirus uh, has, has been uh, successfully uh, dealt with. And we are not doing anywhere near enough. You'll all know that the Paris Agreement, uh, the aim of the Paris Agreement is to hold temperatures, world temperatures to two degrees over 1990 levels, if possible to 1.5. We're heading for a moment for a world where global heating average temperatures are over three degrees. And no amount of, uh, of changes in personal behavior, as important as they are, are gonna do what is necessary to do. It's an interesting statistic I think that's worth uh, uh, bringing home to people, which is for all the human economic and social costs of the coronavirus, emissions fell during the period of lockdown around the world by just over two thirds of what is necessary each and every year from uh, now on to, to keep uh, world temperatures below 1.5. So what we're really talking about is, is collective action on a huge scale, it's systems change. And I think that's what we've got to get in our minds when we're talking about why a green recovery is important. And it's important because this is, uh, as the, the IPCC has made clear, if any of you haven't read it, go and read that landmark 1.5 degree report. This is the crucial decade and I think in many ways, because of the ratchet mechanism that exists with COP, um, you know, with, in, in, which will only have another uh, mid this decade and then at the end of this decade, the, the stimulus packages that countries come forward with over the coming months are going to set actually um, the extent of the ambition behind different countries' climate plans, what goes into COP and actually what sets the trajectory for the next decade. So it's absolutely crucial. Second point I, I wanted to, to, to raise is how do we judge success? And I think this is really important because the government, like they do with so many things, have co-opted already the language of build back better. They've co-opted the language of the green recovery as well. Rishi Sunak said the government are committed to a green recovery. In some ways, um, in co-opting that language, they've taken some of the heat out. And I know those the campaigns that brought forward those messages are very alive to that, to that danger. But in terms of concrete policy, they haven't done an awful lot. The only, the only sizable initiative they've brought forward is a three billion pound one-off uh, package of energy efficiency measures. They've actually been very clear in the, in the weeks since that was announced, that's not gonna be a year on year program. So they're gonna fall short of their manifesto commitment in this area, which was, which was for, for much more. I, I think we can debate, it'd be useful to debate how we judge the, what a successful green recovery is. From my point of view, there's a, there's a, there's a few obvious components of that. One is that I think that scale matters. The amount of that you're devoting in the stimulus does matter. Um, and that's where three billion on energy efficiency package falls well short, because if you look at what other countries are doing, Germany has, has directed 40 billion of its stimulus package at decarbonisation measures. The French were 15 billion, but they've upped it to 30 billion now. Biden's Democrats are talking about a two trillion dollar package aimed at clean energy. Over, over one presidential term, three billion in that context falls far short. So I think, you know, the scale, we've got to impress on people that the scale of the, of the stimulus uh, in terms of how green it is matters. 
The second one, uh, the obvious one for me is consistency. It's no good bringing forth a load of uh, low carbon infrastructure if you're all also bringing forward uh, high carbon infrastructure and not re-examining some of the policies that were announced, for example, 27 billion pound road package in the budget pre-COVID. So I think consistency across the board matters. And the last one would be, you know, whether it's just, and I, I think, you know, maybe Joe, Dimitri and Dave, I'm sure we'll talk about this um, as well. But, but having justice run through the heart of how that, that stimulus package is, is, is targeted, if you like, across the country to deal with other inequalities that we know exist and to help communities uh, and individuals make that transition. So that's kind of how we judge success. The third point I mentioned was how we pressure the government. And it's just one kind of thing I want to want to throw out here. And again, we may talk about it as much, but I think the next 14 months give us a, a huge opportunity to really apply pressure on the government. And that is because we are the hope of, host of the COP26 climate summit uh, in Glasgow next year. Now it's been postponed. So the next 14 months actually um, give us a real point of leverage over the government because you know I'm quite clear that the government I think took on the COP26 climate summit for reasons that had little to do actually uh, with emissions reduction with with green I think they did it because they thought it'd be an easy way to put a stamp on global Britain you know post Brexit or coming out of the transition period I think they were reacting in part to some of the the way of activism we saw last year but it wasn't certainly I think driven by a desire to be really ambitious and to lead the world in that regard. So in a sense, the government, I think, are realising uh, quite what they've taken on in, in being the host. But I think that that being the host gives us a real point of leverage. And we've seen that already. I don't know if some of you saw, we, we called a couple of months back, for example, as campaigners have for some time, for the government to end the financing of all overseas oil and gas projects. I think Boris Johnson is going to do that. Uh, on Thursday, that's what I'm hearing. Uh, maybe we'll see if there are any loopholes in it. But I think that the the, the, the the fact that they are host allows us to say, you know, get your own house in order, and that is a message that the that conservative ministers are very alive to. They don't want the opposition on top of them whenever one one of these projects come forward, or in terms of any domestic things. So I think the 14 months to COP does give us um, a real point of leverage that we, that we won't have after after that takes place in a way, and that's, that's a problem in itself. Finally, just to finish on how we, how we build support outside of parliament, because we've got a job to do in parliament, which, which we are doing, um, I hope you'd agree, uh, but outside parliament, there's a real job as well to build support, I would say just beyond the, the small segment of the population that passionately cares about this, and the segment of the population that pragmatically is willing to go along with, with climate action um, if they think it's beneficial and they get government support to do it. How do we do that? I think this comes back to, in a sense, how we talk about climate, um, but, but, but how we dress it up. And I, I suppose what I'm trying to get across is, for me, Catherine may have a view on this as well, um, the people that talk to me about climate action and come to my surgeries are from a particular segment of the population and they don't in a sense represent the broad um, swathe of my community in a sense and I think we've got to get it out of in a sense what it is seen as by many as a you know a very middle class uh, white as well issue for a small part and we've got to break out of that and what, what all I'm saying I suppose in that sense is it's got to become a working class issue it's got to become about economic and social justice 
as well as emissions reduction, if you like. And I think that's the way that we'll, we'll break through into a, a bigger part of the population and build more widespread support. What we, what we don't want to do, and this was, uh, there's, there's a number of examples of where this has happened, classic one being the French Gilets jaunes movement. We don't want where people are thinking, you're thinking about the end of the world, I'm thinking about the end of the week. Um, green policies equal taxes, they equal taking away my car. We've got to, I think, take people along with us and make it a story about good jobs, you know, warmer homes, cleaner air, very practical examples of how what we need to do on the climate front is also about building a better society for people and, and, and expand that, that conversation. Uh, and I think, you know, the, act, the wave of activism we saw last year, um, if that can continue and give us the space to do that, but I think as a movement, we've got a role through the trade unions, through the fact that we're embedded in, in, in our communities up and down the country to, to get that conversation out of, of the slightly narrow box it can fall in uh, and make it an issue of economic and social justice and a working class issue. Um, because, you know, if we don't, I don't think we're going to get the levels of support for the type of ambitious action we need. And if we don't have that support, you know, A, we're not going to mitigate um, climate um, global heating. But, you know, in a sense, what we will be doing by not having the permission to act as boldly as we need to is postponing what needs to take place. And the longer you postpone the action required, the more disruptive it is going to be at the point where we have to have to act. So, you know, for all those reasons, I think, you know, there's, there's got to be a focus on how we talk to people and how we build support in groups that at the moment don't see climate as an issue that's a priority for them. And Celia, I'll finish there. Thank you very much, Matthew. Absolutely brilliant. Really raised some crucial points there. And I think your last point about widening support and taking it above and beyond some of the support um, networks that we have at the moment um, is, is a really interesting one. And hopefully we can pick that up in the chat. Uh, we don't want to be back in a situation like we were in the last general election where some of Labour's more radical Green New Deal policies were being um, opposed by some of our trade unions because we hadn't done that work in building in building that support so i think some really interesting um issues there that you've raised um so we'll move on to our next speaker who is uh dimitri zengelis uh dimitri's a senior visiting fellow at the grantham research institute at the london school of economics where from 2013 to 2017 he was head of climate policy um, Dimitri was recently Senior Economic Advisor to Cisco's Long-Term Innovation Group and an Associate Fellow at the Royal Institute of International Affairs, Chatham House. He previously headed the Stern Review at, at the Office of Climate Change and he was a lead author on the Stern Review on the economics of climate change, which was commissioned by the then Chancellor Gordon Brown. So, Dimitri, you're very welcome, and the floor is yours. Thank you, Celia. If I'd known you were going to read all that, I'd sent a shorter, <laughs> a shorter bio. Um, now, I'm conscious that it, it's, getting, uh, it's getting late. It's uh, seven o'clock already. And I also uh, see that I can't, I have a presentation, but it turns out that I can't uh, share it because it says host has disabled participant screen sharing. So um, I'm afraid we're going to have to do without the pictures. Um, but I will just try and talk through, I hope it doesn't sound too kind of nerdy and wonkish without the pictures, but um, 
I suppose that's what you get when you invite an economist along to a presentation. Um, but hopefully I'll, I'll, I'll carry you with me. And if I, if I start sort of making no sense, please do interject. Um, I mean, the bottom line of what I was going to say, and I'm going to say, is that, you know, even before COVID-19, the world economy had substantial problems, and the UK perhaps in particular, and did even before 2008, and definitely afterwards, um, the UK's economic performance was fairly unsatisfactory. GDP growth was slow, uh, and so was productivity growth, and therefore so was income and wage growth. And to the extent that there, there were gains in both income and wealth, they were distributed highly uh, unequally. Uh, across society. At the same time, um, interest rates, uh, sorry, inflation and uh, interest rates were historically depressed, and perhaps most importantly of all, real interest rates were historically low. In fact, they were below zero. And what that tells you is that there's too much desired global saving chasing too little investment. And, you know, the weakness of investment has really been at the core of uh, some of um, the economic problems that this country has faced. It's patently obvious that what we needed was markedly higher investment that would both boost demand in the short run and in the long run, in particular, uh, expand supply. And what I'm going to argue is that it turns out that framing a vision of the benefits of uh, a government-led sustainable recovery is actually a really effective way of pulling the world out of recession and of generating uh, inclusive, resilient, as well as sustainable growth. I mean, in the short run, um, we currently face what Keynes called the paradox of thrift, and that occurs when fear of a downturn leads businesses to cut investments and shed labor, uh, banks to retrench credit and consumers to, uh, to cut back on spending. And of course, when everybody does this and responds in the same way, um, expectations become self-fulfilling in generating the very downturn that people were talking about. There's been a lot of invocation recently of FDR uh, and there's, of course, the term Green New Deal. Uh, and, and, and I think the significance of New Deal in a term that's kind of often sort of abused is precisely that it, it, it does rely on stimulating confidence, stimulating spending, stimulating investment, and actually creating productive capacity to boost growth in uh, future years. So, you know, the primary macroeconomic task before us is to stimulate spending uh, hiring and lending in the short run, but we also want to invest in the productive capacity of the economy to improve productivity and growth in the long run. I'll talk about how we might do that in a sustainable and inclusive uh, manner in a minute. Now, my computer is now completely frozen. Never mind, <laughs> it's kind of become more and more challenging. Um, uh, okay, we're back on. Um, so sustainable investment, um, we found, has very good, short, very favorable short and long run properties in this regard. Um, it, in the short run, um, clean energy infrastructure, things like insulation retrofits, building wind turbines, rolling out EV networks, and also planting trees and restoring net wetlands happen to be very labor intensive and not particularly import intensive or susceptible to offshoring. So consequently, they generate what economists call high short-run multipliers, and I'll explain what that means uh, in a moment. But in the long run, uh, they also have favorable properties because the operation and maintenance of these more productive renewable technologies breeds innovation. Uh, it tends to be actually less labor intensive, which means more productive, which in the long run is what you want. You want more output per person, not less. 
And a lot of the cost savings and energy cost savings are then passed on um, to the wider economy. We're already seeing that in electricity generation. We're already seeing that in um, the productivity and cost of electric vehicles, which are soon going to undercut those of, um, uh, of combustion engines. You know, whether you care about the climate or not, we're going to get cheaper electricity and cheaper, better cars. And that's just the beginning as a result of this revolution. So when people are telling you that it's going to be prohibitively and eye-wateringly costly, uh, you have to really understand some of the dynamics about creating new markets and what that does for innovation. And I'll hopefully touch a little bit on that. Uh, so how big are these multipliers? Well, it turns out they're actually very helpfully big. Uh, in a, a downturn like the present, there are a bunch of studies from the IMF, the OECD, uh, MBER, very reputable bodies uh, and top economists who show you that, you know, the likely increase in output of, you know, as a result of one pound of public borrowing is probably in the order of two to three pounds in terms of uh, returns and output. So you don't crowd out private investing. Uh, investment, you actually very effectively uh, crowd that in through stimulating short-term uh, income, but also expanding capacity in the long run. Now, what is the kind of investment that we're talking about? Well, we're talking about a range of comprehensive assets. Now, obviously, productive physical capital is important. You don't want to lock into, you know, um, high carbon uh, intensive uh, fossil fuel infrastructure, which is likely to be uh, either uncompetitive or devalued or stranded in the future. You want to make sure that your investment especially in infrastructure, is future-proof. But you want to do the same with human capital as well. You want the skills and the jobs that are necessary for the 21st century economy. And that means retooling and reskilling workers uh, in order to manage change. Not just manage change from you know, low carbon and resource efficiency, but also the kind of onslaught of new technologies from AI, automation, big data, internet of things, nanotechnologies, you name it which are really changing the way the global economy is going to work. And that, I think, is a, a prerequisite for leveling up, ensuring that people have equal access to the new opportunities that the economy is going to bring. I've talked a little bit about innovation. Um, you know, the key driver of growth in the 21st century is going to be uh, knowledge capital. We have to invest in research and innovation. It will determine our ability to get more out of the resources we have, which is how we square the climate and resource challenge with the growth challenge. We just have to be much cleverer, more innovative in using our resources. It turns out that, you know, some of the kind of um, uh, efficiency challenges posed by things like having higher um, uh, vehicle standards in the EU generated a lot more innovation in R&D and made EU cars much more productive and efficient than American cars, which um, have struggled to make their way in a competitive global market. So again, the sort of classical model where interventions, regulations and standards are seen as inefficient is not, does not fit with the dynamic um, economic model of generating innovation. And we've seen that as I've said already in the costs of renewables, which have fallen by something like eightfold, not 8%, but eightfold for things like solar PV and batteries, which are going to help prevent intermittency, similar falls for electric vehicles. Um, and we also see very big spillovers in innovation in uh, renewable technologies into other parts of the economy, much bigger than you have from innovation in conventional fossil fuels. There's a lot of very rich empirical studies showing that. Um, another really important form of uh, intangible capital is social and institutional capital. It's crucial that the government invests in this to deliver more effective, more functional and fairer government inequality, not just in incomes, but um, in wealth and also in access to public services like housing and transport and education and health um, and a failure to invest in public services has undermined trust 
uh, and it's undermined the social contact and it's contract and it's made effective government and holding uh, politicians and uh, policymakers to account much harder in an environment of low trust. Um, we need to beef up the capacity of state institutions as well, which have become increasingly threadbare as the focus has been on static efficiency of the kind I mentioned before, rather than the, the dynamic sort that we're talking about. And finally, we need to invest, of course, in natural capital, strengthen the quality and resilience of natural capital, and the erosion of natural capital has uh, clearly played a part in making us much more vulnerable to um, pandemics. At this point, I would have showed you a chart um, of a recent survey we undertook with Joe Stiglitz, Nick Stern, uh, Cam Hepburn, uh, Brian Callahan at, uh, at Oxford University, which shows that actually some of the, it's a, it's a survey of leading policymakers from across the world, about I think some 250 of them. Uh, and we asked them um, what they thought were the uh, policy uh, investments that would have the greatest growth impact in terms of multipliers and also the greatest climate impact. Now, if you'd asked that question 10 years ago, people would have probably said, well, you either go for growth or you go for sustainability. What was really interesting is that almost unanimously, the things with the highest growth multipliers were now seen as the things which also had the best climate impact. Things like clean R&D, clean energy investment, um, uh, connectivity infrastructure, investment in green spaces, building upgrades. Those were seen as having the highest growth multiplier. So the story we've been telling is getting across. And of course, it matters. Because if you're a mayor and a business person or a, a, a politician, and, and you know, you think that uh, nobody's going to invest in new uh, green sustainable technologies, then you're probably going to think the finance is expensive, the and niche and the market opportunities are limited, and the technology costs are going to be high, so you won't invest. Whereas, of course, if you think everybody's about to invest, you'll have a very different view, and you'll think that this is likely to be one of the most opportunistic markets, costs will come down, finance will become mainstream, and frankly, uh, if you don't invest in this sector, your competitors might steal a march on you, and policy might become hostile against your uh, inefficient, high-carbon ways, and so you invest. And of course, if you invest, that's one of the most you know, uh, powerful ways to generate cost reductions through innovation. So it becomes a, uh, if you like, a reinforcing feedback that generates these tipping points from old technologies to much more superior networks and technologies, which are very hard to predict. Um, and economists routinely fail to predict these things because they involve behavioral change and they involve path dependencies and multiple equilibria. And the last point I was going to make uh, was to really touch upon um, this question about public indebtedness. Um, now, a lot the private sector is going to have to deliver a lot of the investment that we require, but this needs public support, it needs direct investment, it needs policy and institutional change, things like a national investment bank, things like uh, active devolution of policy, and it needs skin in the game by the public sector to drive private sector innovation. Um, one of the things we've seen since 2008 is the limitations of monetary policy, not least because all this credit sloshing around has gone into asset prices, which has uh, disproportionately enriched those who have wealth. And we've seen COVID-19, which of course makes us all understand the importance of government intervention in building resilience. That of course has led to people being worried about public debt to GDP. And so it's a fair question uh, to ask whether we should worry uh, about uh, public debt and whether fiscal space is tight, how legitimate is that? Um, I would show you a very neat table that I was very proud of, um, which basically says, if you're worried about debt to GDP, there's two ways you can address it. You either address the numerator debt and you do that either by austerity 
bringing down um, the flows of debt in terms of deficits or through defaulting. Um, the experience of that in rich countries has always been very negative. We've tried austerity in this country in the 1920s and 2010, and the cost of the economy and society were arguably significant. The other way to reduce your debt to GDP is to focus on the denominator. Um, you either inflate away, as we did in the 60s and, and um, 70s, um, or uh, you drive real GDP growth. That's the experience of the post-Napoleonic war period of the 19th century. It's the experience of the 1950s and 60s, and it's the experience of the mid-80s till uh, around 2008. That was the most successful period in reducing debt to GDP in this country. And what it shows, and I've already talked about the multipliers in terms of you borrow a pound and you get three pounds in return, that if you invest wisely through borrowing right now, um, the bang for your buck is absolutely enormous. And the best way to reduce debt to GDP is actually to borrow uh, and spend. Can you do that forever? No, of course not. Um, once you solve the problem and the economy's back in equilibrium and real interest rates have risen, then you might seek to balance your budgets over the economic cycle. Um, obviously, the higher your debt to GDP ratios, the more vulnerable you are to fiscal shocks. But that is not the world we live in right now. So it would be a profound mistake, and it's the mistake we made in post-2008 in this country and elsewhere, to focus and fixate excessively on deficits and premature fiscal retrenchment before we've managed to expand our productive capacity. I will stop there because I think I've eaten my 10 minutes. I'm sorry, slightly longer without the pictures, but uh, hopefully I've, uh, uh, I've made some sense. And if I haven't, please don't hesitate to ask me questions. Thank you so much, Dimitri. That was absolutely fascinating. Um, I am gonna move straight on now to um, Joe who is our next speaker, uh, Joe Rees. Um, Joe is a Policy and Communications Support Officer at the Wales TUC, where she contributes to the organisation's work on environment, equality and workplace learning. Thanks very much for being here, Joe, and over to you. Well, thank you for inviting me to join you this evening. Um, so yeah, I'm from the Wales TUC, and we're based in Cardiff. We have 48 member unions and we represent around 400,000 workers in Wales. So we're an integral part of the TUC and we align with its UK policy and campaigns, but we have autonomy and responsibility for devolved matters in Wales. Um, and I've been invited to talk about the work that trade unions have been doing in Wales to campaign for a green recovery. Um, so in June, we published a report called A Green Recovery and a Just Transition. Um, and I will pop a link to that in the chat a bit later on. Um, so you can take a look at that if you're interested in, in doing so. Um, but in the report, we called for a massive economic stimulus and set out a plan to achieve a just transition to a net zero economy for workers and communities in Wales. Um, so when we talk about a just transition to a greener economy, what we mean is one where workers have a central voice in planning the transition, so it's done with them, not to them, and it's one where no workers or communities are left behind, and where the new jobs that are created are just as good as any that are lost in terms of pay, skills, pension, health and safety. Um, and there's growing consensus in Wales that the recovery from coronavirus must be used as an opportunity to take the urgent action needed to build a greener and fairer economy. Um, so our report sets out a five point plan of how this could be achieved in Wales. And so we're calling for, firstly, a clear and funded pathway to net zero that maximises the opportunities to protect and create jobs. Um, then we're saying that the workers most affected by the move to a net zero economy should be given a central voice in planning that transition. 
We're calling for all new jobs in the green economy to offer fair work with good pay, skills, pensions, health and safety and trade union recognition. Um, for workplace transition agreements to be agreed between employers and unions to ensure a fair transition in every workplace. And we're also calling for employers to work with trade unions on workplace sustainability initiatives. And finally, we're calling for increased funding for learning and skills to prepare workers for the transition and provide clear pathways into new jobs. Um, so you may know that the Senate was the first parliament to declare a climate emergency in April 2019. And the Welsh Government has stated its ambition to reach net zero carbon emissions by 2050 and to make the Welsh public sector carbon neutral by 2030. And it's put in place a system of carbon budgets and a low carbon delivery plan. We've also got the framework of the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act, which the Welsh Government has established. Um, and it's a unique approach by placing a wellbeing and sustainable development duty in the decision making and actions of public bodies. Um, tackling climate change is central to the Act and it's integral to its wellbeing goals. And the promotion of decent work is also a key part of the legislation. But we know that net zero will be more challenging for Wales because we have a greater share of harder to reduce emissions compared to other parts of the UK. So for example, we have a higher share of energy intensive industries such as the steel industry. Um, and in Wales, around one in five workers are in climate critical sectors um, that are likely to be highly impacted by the transition. So we're looking at manufacturing, construction, transport and energy. So we know it's these industries that will be key to achieving the transition. And just looking at our steel industry, for example, we know that that's cr crucial to the whole UK economy and actually that many of the new greener technologies and infrastructure will require steel, for example, wind turbines. Um, so there's an overwhelming case for additional UK government investment to support research and development into things like lower carbon, greener steel, as governments in other countries such as Sweden and Germany are doing. Um, and if we don't provide this support, there's a risk of energy intensive jobs and emissions simply being exported overseas where costs are less and environmental and labour standards may be lower. Um, so one thing we definitely don't want to see a repeat of mistakes of the past when we saw communities in Wales left behind by industrial change. Um, and it's not just the climate critical sectors. We know the scale of the transition means workers across all sectors will be affected and will be part of efforts to decarbonise and move Wales to a more sustainable zero waste circular economy. Um, that's another thing the Welsh Government um, are planning for is to make Wales zero waste by 2050. Um, and I think they're already kind of um, very high in the sort of league table of the world in terms of recycling. So that's something um, that they're looking to develop into this circular economy. Um, so we know that trade union members have the knowledge and ideas to help deliver the changes that are needed. And their voices must be heard at a workplace, regional, sectoral and national level to ensure that happens. One thing we've been really pleased to see is that the Welsh Labour Government's COVID recovery plans have prioritised the reconstruction um, based on values of social justice, fair work and environmental sustainability. And in Wales, we've established a social partnership council, which brings together government, employers and trade unions in areas of mutual interest to design and implement better solutions. So over the last two decades, the Welsh Government has sought to revive and rebuild social partnership in Wales. Um, in, and you may know it's an approach that's been considered normal across most, most of Europe, but which was discarded at a UK level under Thatcher. Um, and the Social Partnership Council has been meeting fortnightly throughout the pandemic to help plan the response to COVID-19. 
I mean, of course, there are times when there are differences of opinion or approach, but the social partnership arrangements provide a forum for positive social dialogue. And that means we've already been able to start a dialogue about a just transition. And we've had some really positive discussions with Welsh Government about how we can take forward those plans from our report. And while we welcome action from the Welsh Government to work together to tackle the climate emergency and build the green recovery, we also recognise that there are some levers outside of the Welsh Government's powers. So there are limits on what can be done due to the constraints of the devolution settlement. For example, employment law is a matter reserved to Westminster, but the Welsh Government is working to use all of its available policy levers to implement fair work and ensure that new jobs are good jobs by applying a something for something principle to organisations that receive government support through the economic contracts in Wales. And the Welsh Government are also keen to support the role of the trade union green or environment rep in workplaces um, where they can influence that. So in the devolved public sector and in those private organisations receiving funding um, who are subject to the economic contract. So green reps currently don't have statutory rights to facility time under UK law like other reps, like health and safety reps do. Um, so that's something we're looking to for other ways that we can support that role as much as possible in Wales. Um, and the Welsh Government has already allocated additional funding to the Wales Union Learning Fund as part of the COVID recovery response. And that's going to be used for training. Linked, it can be linked to the decarbonisation agenda, as well as to support workers at risk of redundancy to help them retrain. But we know that it's no good to train people for new green jobs if the jobs aren't there for them to go to. And one of the biggest barriers we face to a green recovery is the ability to create those jobs in Wales due to the constraints of the funding settlement from UK government. So when the UK government decides to spend more or less on things such as health and education, the Barnet formula is what's used to decide how much money other nations receive. So for example, if health spending increases by £100 per person in England, um, then the devolved governments will receive the equivalent amount. Um, so the amount that the UK government commits to spending has a direct impact on how much funding the Welsh government will have to spend on this. And I know the TUC is continuing to push the UK government to invest in green jobs for the recovery, among other measures to support workers in the economy. But to date, the funding that's been allocated for a green recovery from UK government is woefully inadequate. Um, I think it's been mentioned about, I think so far it's just the three billion of spending. And that's just a fraction of the money compared to what's been allocated in other European countries. Um, we're supporting calls for Wales to be given further flexibility in its powers to borrow so it can invest more in its climate priorities but we know that Wales will not be able to deliver the transition without a significant increase in funding investment and policy changes from the UK government and we've recently commissioned some research by an organization called transition economics and they looked at which green infrastructure jobs um, would support uh, job creation and decarbonization in Wales um, and it showed that almost 60,000 jobs could be created in the next two two years through government investment in key infrastructure projects um, and again I'll put some links to this in the in the chat in a moment um, so it's six billion of investment in infrastructure to fast-track projects such as um, the decarbonisation of social housing and public transport um, and this could make a significant contribution to decarbonisation and the economic recovery as well as providing jobs to those in some of the sectors and demographics who've been hit hardest by the COVID-19 emergency so we're echoing the calls that the TUC has made on UK government in its recent report, Voice in Place, 
how to plan fair and successful paths to net zero emissions. And that report sets out the urgent action needed to provide support for different sectors, such as the steel sector, and develop a pathway to net zero that is just and reduces regional inequalities. Um, we're very concerned about the impact of Brexit and how the structural funds will be replaced. Um, the UK government must fully respect the devolution settlement so that the Welsh government has the power to decide how those funds are spent. Um, on a more positive note, one area where we are seeing significant investment coming forward from Welsh Government is in the decarbonisation of social housing and we think this could be hugely positive and that we can work to develop this in social partnership and really create the maximum benefits in terms of skills, jobs, um, going out to the wider foundational economy and the wider community. And we're also seeing an increasing interest and level of acti activism from unions on a workplace level. Um, there's a lot of workplace sustainability initiatives going on. I've been doing some case studies in recent weeks of those and um, spoken to some really inspiring reps who've been doing things like setting up workplace orchards and hospitals or campaigning to get their employers to declare a climate emergency and make a commitment to becoming carbon neutral. Um, and we're also um, working with um, Welsh Government and with the International Trade Union Movement on, on the um, preparation to COP. Um, so although there are lots of challenges, there are also lots of positives and we're continuing to work together as a movement with our member unions, colleagues in the TUC and the International Trade Union, Trade Union Movement to press for a green recovery from this crisis. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. That's absolutely fascinating. I'm sure we're all very struck by the difference in approach between the Welsh uh, and the Westminster governments. Um, thank you very much for that really interesting contribution. Um, time's running on, so I'm going to move straight to David. Um, David Timms is the Head of Political Affairs at Friends of the Earth, where he leads the political, legal and planning team. Thanks for being here, David, and the floor is yours. Thank you, Celia. It's to be here. Um, actually, due to lockdown, this is the first time I've been north of the river, even virtually since March. And <laughs> um, um, when lockdown started, and you know, we all watched with horror, fearful as the COVID death toll uh, rose. Many people also started to notice other things: the quiet on the roads, the clearer skies, and to value the mutual support in our communities or having nearby green space to exercise outdoor became increasingly important to us. And science also started to reveal more about the virus, that being outdoors reduces transmission and that exposure to air pollution makes vulnerability much worse. And it seemed to become increasingly clear that COVID and environmental inequality are deeply linked, not to mention that the increasing number of zoonotic diseases emerging has been linked to the destruction of natural habitats around the world, driven by consumer capitalism. The pandemic has highlighted the existing inequalities in our society, with the wealthiest able more easily to isolate and work from home, while poor communities and people of colour have been disproportionately exposed to the virus and paid the price. But some, especially some mainly on the right, speculated that um, environmentalists would somehow be pleased. Wasn't this going to be the breakthrough we wanted in tackling climate change? After all, no traffic means no carbon emissions. But let's be clear, there is there are no upsides to 40,000 plus deaths in the UK and millions of unemployed. But there are lessons to be learned and the chance and the case to do things differently in the future that has opened up in a way that we really haven't seen before. Yes, I think uh, Dimitri sort of uh, mentioned this or Matt 
mentioned this, we have seen the biggest decline in global emissions ever, one point down by 25% compared with the same time last year. But as people started to move around again, emissions are starting to rise, and it's estimated they will only fall by between 4 and 7% this year. But we have seen a similar moment a decade ago after the financial crash, when carbon emissions had declined, but then bounced straight back up faster than before with record growth and a further decade of headlong drive towards climate catastrophe. Yes, some change in work patterns may stay with us, and BP is predicting an earlier peak demand for oil. But as Matthew said earlier, unless this is accompanied by structural change and the investment to transition the economy, then we really know further forward. And perhaps economic recovery from COVID is the wrong, wrong term, it's the wrong framing. When we recover from an illness, we return to the state we were in previously. But our economy was horribly broken before COVID struck, deeply disfigured by structural inequality and poverty, and locked into a destructive pattern of activity which is destroying the ecosystems on which we depend, with impacts right now hurting the poorest and most vulnerable hardest who have done the least to cause the problem. This is not a state that we want to recover back to. It was something we need to build, it's something we need to rebuild from even before the pandemic. So hence the slogan, build back better, to hold on to what we have learned about ourselves during the pandemic and make a decisive break with the worst of what has come before. And much of the public are there already. As Clive Lewis said yesterday, irrespective of age, sex, class, or ethnicity, people want a fairer, greener, more community-orientated future. They do not want to see society go back to how it was. And polling commissioned by the Conservative Environment Network, a website I suspect not many of you visit that often, two-thirds of the public say that a recovery that didn't tackle climate change and pollution would be bad for the economy in the long run, with a consensus across age, voting behaviour and region. So this is a massive mandate and a huge opportunity and a large number of organisations have responded advocating carefully crafted green stimulus packages to save jobs, cut carbon emissions and kickstart the transition to a, a zero carbon economy. Shove already measures that won't see us escape the grip of one crisis by climbing further into the arms of another one. For example, the New Economics Foundation's package costs uh, spending of 28 billion pounds over 18 months that will create 400,000 jobs. Ourselves, Greenpeace and WWF have called for an additional 25 billion pounds uh, of spending annually as a, spend, as a stimulus for the next three years. And there is a growing consensus that recovery must have fairness at its core, both in terms of responding to existing inequalities, but also how the costs are borne and the need to invest in just transition for those carbon intensive industries that can't operate zero carbon and those that need support to do it. And yes, there are lots of different estimates of jobs created and, and the costs, but many common elements, household energy efficiency, public transport and investment in walking and cycling stand out as just about everybody is calling for. And government actions, as has been mentioned, don't go far enough to get close to the scale of any of these packages. Or indeed, the Committee on Climate Change's recommendations to get even on track to meet the old 80% emissions reduction target, let alone net zero. So instead of 2 billion for cycling walking over this parliament that's been promised, we need to see 2 billion annually to meet the level of investment seen in the Netherlands. Instead of a one-off 2 billion home energy efficiency, we need to see a decade-long programme 
of investment of two billion a year to upgrade every home in the country. At current rates, it will take us 1,500 years to install the number of heat pumps we need. As Matthew said, set that against the 27 billion pound road building programme. And the excellent work done by Dimitri shows that a green stimulus is quite simply the best stimulus. That's ironic. Normally, we assume it's the environment that needs saving from the economy. But now we find that the economy needs to be saved by the environment. But what frightens me is that we're only getting movement on home energy efficiency inadequates we've seen from government now in response to the pandemic. Was climate change not emer emergency enough? For years, it's been identified as the lowest hanging fruit with the greatest carbon and social benefits. It's been described as the Swiss army knife of policies. Yet spending was slashed under the coalition and insulation rates dropped by 95%. So, yes, there are differences, even among those who largely agree about the need for a stimulus, for example, about the technologies and industries that should be supported. But it turns out that the massive scale and speed of economic intervention that we have been arguing for for years to tackle climate change is perfectly possible after all, when the political will is there. But a green and fair stimulus package, while essentially is not sufficient response to the pandemic, we must also address and repair the inequalities that COVID exploited. Green space during lockdown with eight out of 10, saying the, the outbreak has shown the importance of protecting and restoring nature. But not everyone has a garden, I don't. Uh, and local green space is disproportionately not available to working class and BME communities. And yesterday we published a study showing that 11 and a half million people live in neighbourhoods that are the most deprived of accessible green space. Over 40% of people of colour live in those communities, over twice as likely as a white person to do so. So we are calling for a recovery package to include a five billion pounds annually to restore nature everywhere. A massive jobs rich programme of tree planting, park building and habitat restoration. Now, one barrier to building back better is that one of the key yardsticks we, might, we use to measure these things will be the wrong one, GDP. Instead, we need indicators that capture the value of unpaid work, such as caring, that don't discount environmental harm and recognise the damage that income and wealth inequalities cause. Now, the New Zealand government, I understand, has given up on using GDP as a measure of success, replacing it with a living standards framework, which measures well-being. Joe mentioned the Wales Future Generation and Future Generations Act, which is an innovative step in this sort of direction. And not all jobs being lost to COVID can be replaced immediately by those generated even by an ambitious green stimulus package. I take no satisfaction from jobs being lost in aviation, fossil fuels, or the automotive sector. I'm a Unite member and a former shop steward myself. Jobs need protecting urgently, no matter what sector they're in. But bailouts mustn't go to subsidised shareholders and need to come with strings such as targets fitting efficiency or accepting regulations. The transition to a zero carbon economy must be just, managed one, which wherever possible transfers workers to jobs of similar skills and equal value nearby. So we want to see a £4.3 billion a year transformation fund with, it's transformation fund with stakeholders including unions developing locally relevant transition plans for training and investment to develop new clean employment that's appropriate wherever that is. And an immediate jobs and training guarantee for those made unemployed, paying at least the living wage with a focus on green jobs for the long term. 
So finally, what's Labour's role? Well, it seems like an obvious question with hopefully an obvious answer to fight for this in Parliament, in local government, and to relentlessly make the case for it in public debate. Now, at the general election, Friends of the Earth caused quite a stir when we scored Labour's manifesto and campaign commitments as being ahead of the Green parties on the environment. This was a rigorous and evidence-based process. Now, I'm going to tread very carefully here because I am under no illusions how painful recent times have been for the Labour Party. However, my job is to ensure that all parties pursue the strongest possible policies for the environment. And that manifesto was almost certainly the greenest the UK has ever seen from a major party, and climate was a major part of Labour's election campaign. But my impression, my honest impression is, that there's been a noticeable downgrading of climate change in the narratives that Labour has pursued since the election. In his speech this week to the TUC on the very subject of coping with and recovering from COVID-19, Keir Starmer didn't mention climate change, he didn't mention green jobs, he didn't mention just transition, not the need to build out for crisis in a way that doesn't deepen the climate one. So I agree with much of what, uh, uh, what Matthew said, but you can't make climate a working class issue if you aren't prepared to argue that it is. Yes, Ed Miliband has a commission to look at green recovery policies, and this should take their manifesto as its starting point to equal its ambition and scope, even if some of the policies change. We need Labour placing the green recovery at the centre of its messages right now, making high demands for government with agenda setting policies while government is deciding what next on the recovery package. Thanks. Thank you very much, Dave. And certainly the, the last point you made there about what Labour needs to do are obviously issues that um, are very much at the foreground of, of, of our minds as, as a CLP. Um, I'm going to move straight now to our final speaker, Rebecca Diskey, who we're very pleased has been able to join us this evening. Um, Rebecca's a former civil servant and has an activist background on social and climate justice issues. She's currently organising with Green New Deal UK on the Build Back Better campaign. And she is the co-founder of the Haringey Green New Deal Hub. So it's great to have you here, Becca, and uh, welcome. Thank you, Celia. Um, and hi, everyone. So I'm, I'm not um, Anya, who was um, trailed uh, by Catherine at the beginning, but um, we're part of the same group part of the local Green New Deal UK hub in Haringey. Um, I think I now actually can share a screen so sorry to everyone else who didn't get it. Oh no I can't sorry. It looked like I could, could but it didn't work in the end. Okay so um, I, I'm going to be very quick partly because it's 7.35 and partly because Dave basically said everything um, I wanted to say. <laughs> um, so I will, I will try not to repeat too much. Um, but essentially, I just wanted to talk very quickly about what a Green New Deal is. Um, I won't go into detail because I, I guess you'll, you'll be, most of you will be familiar. Um, but in a nutshell, it's an ambitious 10-year plan to secure a safe climate um, and a fairer society. So something that lots of the speakers um, tonight have talked about. Um, by totally transforming our econ economy. And that's why I was really cheered to hear um, Matthew use the phrase system change. I don't know if you did it wittingly, but um, it, was, it was really, um, it was good to hear uh, someone in the Labour shadow cabinet use, use that phrase, because we basically think that, you know, that, that is um, the only way of dealing with the scale 
of the challenge. Um, the point about transforming our economy is key. Um, and you know, we see these crises of climate change and inequality as completely interconnected. Um, that's only been made more urgent by COVID, obviously, um, which has exposed both our threat um, and the risks of underinvestment and underpreparation. Um, so we all know about the appalling rates of inequality in the UK and globally, um, as well as the increasingly frightening records broken by the accelerating climate crisis, um, some of which has been discussed tonight. The point that Green New Deal UK wants to make is that um, those two crises are not separate. They're the, you know, the same economic system that has brought us um, sky high inequality is also responsible for the onset of environmental collapse. Um, and we see these issues that, you know, they're massive and our solutions must be too. So we're calling for a very bold and ambitious programme of investment, um, government investment, job, job creation and restoration of our environment. Um, the kind only seen once in a generation, hence the kind of um, the New Deal phrase. Um, and we do see you know, that COVID has actually potentially provided a window of opportunity for, for that scale of change. Um, I'll just quickly talk about our principles. I had some nice graphics um, to, to show you, but um, I can, I'm happy to send um, any information um, or I can link them in the chat um, to people who are interested afterwards. Um, but the first principle is to totally decarbonize the economy while also working to eradicate social and, and economic inequality. Um, and that means talking about, yes, it means making it a working class issue and I would echo um, Dave's plea um, for, for Labour to talk more vocally about, about that. Um, but it also um, means addressing things like uh, migration um, in terms of you know, migrant justice um, and being vocal on some of the things that uh, this government is, is being very vocal in, in, you know, in the wrong sense. Um, and and there, is, there is a real risk that as support for climate action um, gains pace, if we don't also talk about the, like, you know, the, the, the massive um, impact on um, people from disadvantaged communities of, of whom, you know, um, women and migrants uh, are probably at the, at the sharpest end, um, we could really see a, um, a, a kind of drifting to, into the realms of eco-fascism. Um, so that's, sorry, that, that was a bit of a tangent, but that was the first um, principle. Secondly, um, we need to create millions of new, well-paid, secure, unionised jobs. And um, that's been talked about enough, so I won't, go, I won't um, dwell on that. Um, the third is the transformation of our economy. So um, the idea that the financial system should serve the needs of the people and planet um, rather than prioritising profits. Um, and the fourth principle is protection and restoration of vital habitats and carbon sinks. Um, and finally, we must promote global justice. So um, that's accounting for historic emissions and also the exp exploitation of resources and communities, particularly those in the global south. So Dimitri, um, in his fascinating presentation, talks about the importance of like, technological innovation. But I would just also add to that, that there's a real, we really can't see technology as the only, you know, as the panacea, because, um, you know, for example, if we, if we want to just, you know, have everyone driving electric cars, that's going to need um, massive, in fact, um, completely unsustainable um, levels of mining of um, minerals in places that are already devastated um, by, um, by climate change. Um, so I would just add that to caution. Um, then building back better, um, I think Dave has, has talked um, you know, 
Friends of the Earth are part of that coalition um, and Green New Deal is one of the conveners. Um, so we basically see that, you know, this, the COVID crisis is in many ways like the impending climate crisis in miniature. Um, like the pandemic, both the physical impact and the economic fallout of climate change will hit the already vulnerable and most marginalised in our society hardest. As well, like the pandemic, climate change will show, and already has in many parts of the world, the cost of ignoring science um, and of stripping back public services uh, of, and of under-preparing for events we know are coming. The government has already initiated policies that would have been unthinkable six months ago. Um, as Dave said, you know, it, it's now clear that where there is a political will to, to do whatever it takes, massive investment and radical thinking can materialise. Um, and so I, I just end on just quickly that, that point about building back better and, um, and, the, and, the, and building a coalition that, that doesn't, you know, that isn't just the usual suspects. So what that's looking like in Harrogate um, at our local hub level is reaching out to um, lots of different community organisations, migrant justice organisations, um, food banks, um, students, unions. Um, in Harrogate, you'll know there's a, there's a big Kurdish and Turkish community, so um, community groups um, you know, representing particular um, cultural um, and, and national um, populations, um, and trying to trying to work with them on a vision for what building back would better in Harangay would look like, um, but also on a, on a kind of collective um, attempt to hold both government to account, but also just all politicians, you know, um, to, to be talking about this in a much broader way. And the one thing I would just add that I don't think has been talked about, um, at least not explicitly this evening, is there's a lot of talk about, um, you know, in the green recovery of green jobs, um, and what most people think of when they hear that term is hard hats and solar panels um, and retrofitting. And absolutely all of those are crucial and, um, and we need to be doing all of those. And I think those are you know, that's the less controversial. That's, that's incre you know, increasingly uncontroversial. Um, but the other side of it is that there are already lots and lots of low carbon jobs in public services that exist um, and that should be seen as green jobs. Um, and we should be creating many more. And the COVID has shown that, you know, we have far too few care workers, NHS workers, um, people working in key work that have, until a few months ago was um, not valued at all. And actually is still in, in terms of you know, pay and, and conditions still undervalued. Um, and we need to start having that conversation that, that those are green jobs. If more people work in those jobs, um, it's not only but, and that you know, and, and that those jobs are unionised and well paid and well respected, um, then you know it's not only better. It's not. It doesn't only create jobs, but it also is better for society as a whole and would better prepare us for um, the massive uh, health impacts that um, both COVID and future pandemics, but also climate change, um, are likely to um, wreak on us. So. I would just um, put that in there as a, as a placeholder. Um, so I think I'll probably end there because I think there's only 15 minutes left for questions and I'm sure people will want to ask the other experts lots of questions. But if anyone wants to find out more about what we're doing in Harringay, then let me know and I can um, speak offline. Thank you. Thank you very much, Becca. And perhaps you can put um, any links into the chat, which does seem to be working now. So uh, thanks very much indeed. That was a great contribution. And thanks to all our speakers. Um, I'm sure there's lots of questions. 
I can already see some questions appearing in the chat. So do put your questions in there if you'd like to. Um, if you want to put your hand up, then use the hand up facility, which you can see at the bottom of the participants screen. And we've already got some um, hands going up. I've seen a question from um, Helen though, and I think um, Sydney, I think you've got a question and you're going to incorporate part of Helen's question into, into your question. So do you want to kick off Sydney and then we'll take some more. I'm going to ask people to be really short and concise with their questions. I'm going to take questions in batches of three and then I'll pick one of the speakers to answer uh, different questions so we can get around as many people as possible. So nice and, and quick if you can. Can you hear me? Yes, that's great, Sydney. Right, this is to Matthew Pennycook. How can Labour make sure that statements and interviews always stress the opportunity for millions of jobs to be created as we recover from COVID? Because frequently unemployment issues are discussed without mentioning this, but I'll also add um, Kia's talk to the TUC, which we understand didn't mention it, and has caused a lot of anxiety and consternation amongst um, people who, who are working hard on climate issues. Thanks, okay. Chris Barker. Let me unmute, here we go. Yeah, <clears throat> Dimitri, uh, like all economists, talks about growth. Uh, my understanding is that we all consumed at the rate that we do in this country, we would need four planets to do it. And so even now we are consuming too much. Question, how can we reconcile no growth with Green New Deal? And can I make another point? David Timms talking about supporting all workers. And of course I agree with that, but he seemed to imply that that includes uh, workers in the oil industry and the airline industry, which means more cars, more oil, more flying. Does he really mean that? or is there a way around that question? Thanks very much. Um, are there any more, is there a third question before I take those two? Any hands? Jenny, Jenny Bourne-Taylor. Hi, um, yeah, I'd like to ask, um, everyone's talked a lot about sort of what I think of as a more sort of industrial side of the Green New Deal and um, Becca quite rightly talks about the importance of the caring professions, the non, if you like, obviously productive side in helping to build a green recovery. And I think we might also bear in mind that that also has very strong gendered implications. And there's, you know, it gets away from sort of macho hard hat image and talks more about kinds of work that women can participate in and women's role in, in helping to build green recovery. But the other area that doesn't seem to have been looked at very much is agriculture. And I think one of the opportunities that we have post-Brexit, and I say this as an, somebody who's totally against Brexit, is that it does actually give us an opportunity to have a far more, a far greener agricultural policy and to help not only climate change, but also the biodiversity crisis that we're facing at the moment, which is completely bound up with the climate crisis, but which is, as I'm sure everybody's seen about reports on the news, absolutely catastrophic at the moment. And the UK is one of the worst in Europe um, in terms of their record on biodiversity loss. 
and you know more and more work that's been done on this shows that it's not enough just to have a few areas of conservation where you try to keep a few birds and butterflies alive it's actually about changing the whole structure of the agricultural industry and thinking about how agriculture is used to protect all sorts thanks. of yeah, thanks jenny yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to stop you there. I think we've got that. And Brenda, you've got your hand up, so we'll take yours and then we'll we'll go to the panellists. Okay, all the speakers have talked about there being a win-win between jobs, the economy and climate. However, Labour's in opposition, it looks like, for another four years at least. And so I think there's an issue about really another, many of the speakers have touched on what's needed to be done, but what can Labour do more to pressure the Westminster government, which is very different from the Scottish and Welsh ones, how to reach the wider public who do see climate change as a bit of a middle class vegan thing, and who to partner with, both within Parliament and outside Parliament. I mean, people have talked about unions and NGOs and so on, and communities and councils, but it's not happening enough and we're talking about needing a green new deal now not in some time in the future when we might be in government so it's really how do you put rocket boosters on some of the things people have talked about as being necessary but they're not happening enough thanks very much okay so um we'll have some nice brief answers as well if we may to some of those so Matthew could you pick up the question from Sydney about the role and attitude of the current Labour leadership uh, on on some of these issues yeah I, I will do and I, and I kind of I think <clears throat> take Dave's point on as well um, which and I'm sorry I think it was someone used the word anxiety I'm sorry that you're feeling anxious about the the present situation or that Dave feels that it that our sort of climate ambition has been downgraded. It hasn't. If it had, I wouldn't have accepted the role that I'm in. Um, me and Ed are at pains at every point to not only talk about you know the most the need for the most ambitious clean recovery in the world for a dramatic acceleration in the pace of scale of climate change for a zero carbon army, whatever it may be, but to explicitly reaffirm the commitment in the manifesto to get the substantial majority to aim for the substantial majority of emissions reductions to take place in this uh, in this decade and um, so in terms of the ambition it's not being degraded there's a there's a wider point and i understand why this is with a new leader people want to hear Keir talk about it and he will and i think the timing of that is related to i think in part when the government move on this so we got a lot of sense that the government um, in, in rishi sunak's summer statement weren't going to come out with a lot partly because there was a lots of policies not ready I think at the spending review, you're going to see lots of uh, green policies, actually. They may not, they won't be up to the, the scale of what's required, but I expect uh, lots of low carbon infrastructure to come forward in the spending review for it to be scorecarded for its impact in red wall constituencies that the government has taken. Um, I think Johnson will come out with, with a series of policies over many, many weeks next month, as well as this uh, announcement, which we called for last month, as I said, for the ending of fossil fuel financing overseas at the UN General Assembly. So there's going to be movement on the government side. We absolutely need to talk about it. It's got to be hardwired into how we talk. I agree it's got to be hardwired into how we talk about uh, the economy and economic recovery. But there's a wider point, and I think this is just, I'll finish on this, speaks to Rebecca's point. There's lots of polling I've seen that actually when you talk, to, when, when you ask the public 
what they think of when you say a green job. It's a kind of, for many, a meaningless phrase, a green job. It doesn't kind of signal, we use it all the time. We use it, in fact, it's one of many phrases we use, like just transition green jobs that we just sort of bandy around. For a lot of people, it doesn't mean so a lot. So I think you've got to make it much more tangible than that. And for some people, it will just be talking about jobs in the industries of the future without having to scream green at people. We can, you know, in a, in a sense. So there's a white, there's a there's a very live discussion in the party about how you know how best we talk about this to reach those people that you know aren't currently, as I said in, in my opening remarks, aren't currently signed up to. Uh, you know, bold climate action, or you know, might, might not even have a sense of of of, of the of the as, as as Rebecca said again, the system change that needs to take place. Uh, but I kind of you know, to the best that I can do on this call, assure people that it has not been downgraded. It was just reported at the weekend. I'm holding quite a scary phrase. I'm holding a green pen. Apparently, I get holding a green pen. It's one of the three. Uh, it's what. Reducing carbon emissions is one of the three ways we're going to score any policy going into the next manifesto. So it's going to remain central. Thanks very much. That's good to hear, Matthew. Um, Dimitri, can you pick up on uh, Chris's question? How do we reconcile no growth with a Green New Deal? Yeah, and Rebecca touched on this as well when she talked about innovation. Um, yes. I agree with everything Rebecca said, especially on this point about how this is systemic and non-marginal. You know, we talk about decarbonizing energy. We're actually moving to a whole totally transfigured uh, energy and economic system. And it's important to be clear about that. And therein lie a lot of the opportunities, by the way. Um, but I don't agree with the growth and innovation um, story that's been portrayed. I mean, first, I think everyone here will agree that, you know, it, it's fine for us to talk about being anti-growth when you're talking to developing countries and parts of sub-Saharan Africa where there is endemic po poverty, um, actually asking these countries not to grow their consumption is kind of frankly offensive and insulting, but I suspect most of us aren't. So we're talking about the rich world um, and whether growth um, can be reduced to improve sustainability. I'm not convinced that's the best way to do it. Um, there's a lot more to life than growth. Uh, and, and, you know, I won't talk about that in the time we've got here, but one of the things that's important is that, you know, well-being um, and material consumption don't necessarily have to go together. Uh, and actually growth isn't about material consumption. So we can dematerialize growth. Now, Rebecca made the point about mining minerals for electric vehicles. Um, she said that, you know, we're going to run out. I'm really not worried about running out of these minerals. We never do. Um, we always find more. We're always 20 years away from running out of something. What happens is the price goes up and people dig harder and find uh, more of those minerals. What I am concerned about is the process of mining itself uh, and the transportation of minerals across the world, which are deeply destructive to the environment and deeply destructive to communities. So I'm very much in favor of dematerialization. And the only way you're going to get dematerialization is to innovate, to get more out of the resources you have. And it turns out that we've never really bothered trying because the classical economic model, which talks about market, you know, perfectly optimizing market and rational consumers and producers says that every standard and regulation you introduce is inefficient and distortionary. Well, that's just not true, actually. In fact, in most cases, when you put standards and regulations in, it breeds innovation and research and development that makes uh, 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 products much more efficient and productive. And there's plenty of evidence of that. And if you want to look at, you know, 
examples of uh, rationing consumption from post-war Europe or Stalinist Russia, they did not breed an economic uh, and environmental renaissance. Just go on Google Maps after this call finishes and have a look at the satellite picture of the border between Haiti and the Dominican Republic if you want to look at the impacts and the correlation between uh, degrowth and environmental sustainability, and it ain't positive. So I think innovation is crucial to this. And to say that it doesn't work when we haven't bothered trying, I find that, you know, deeply disturbing. Thank you for that, Dimitri. Uh, I'm going to go over to um, Becca now, if I may. Becca, would you be able to pick up the question that Jenny asked about the role of women's uh, jobs in building the recovery um, and and the role of agriculture um, in a post-Brexit world? Um, yeah, I can have a go. I, I would, um, I agree with Jenny's points and I, I think that um, if, if I'd had longer, yeah, I think we'd, I would definitely have brought up the gender, um, the gendered aspect. I think, you know, although these jobs are often not seen as productive, they are like intrinsically involved in um, social reproduction. Um, and a lot of that is not actually um, there are they're not you know paid jobs. There's actually lots of caring, obviously, that's going on um, outside of the the formal economy. Um, so I think absolutely talking about it in those terms um, is really important, and that's something that um, environmental movements and um, you know people working on like just just transition projects, for example, uh, have not done enough of. Um, but there are increasingly I think there is increasingly a recognition of that. So for example, the women's budget group has started to do um, quite a lot of work on what a feminist Green New Deal would look like um, and talking about the caring economy in kind of um, in green recovery terms. Um, so I think absolutely we should be we should we should be doing that and, and on ag agriculture again I think it's it's very easy for that to get forgotten um, in circles that are largely urban um, middle class um, and you know not yeah you know it just feels completely alien I think to, to a lot of people who are in um, like the environmental or, the, or even the climate justice movement that's not true globally at all um, a lots of the most um, vocal and like, reputable um, activists and organizations working on climate justice um, outside of the West are, are specifically focused on farming and agriculture um, via Campesina, for example. In fact, in the UK, War and Want, for example, does some really good stuff um, with um, agricultural workers in, um, in the Global South and the, the, looking at how supply chains could be reconfigured um, to both improve conditions for, for workers um, in those sectors, but also um, massively um, help our, you know, us get on the right track um, for, for the Paris target. Um, and then in the UK, I think 100%, I think, you know, again, we're not, we're not talking about it enough. I know actually in, um, when Haringey Green New Deal met um, Catherine West, um, she, she did actually raise this point. So I think some, some within um, the Labour Party are, are thinking about it. And I think, you know, especially in terms of the coming trade deals that um, are likely to be made, so particularly with America, you know, that's going to define our economy um, in some ways for decades to come. And if we don't get the aspects on agriculture right, um, we're very, you know, we will fall, fall short of our targets in other areas. So um, 
that hasn't answered the question, but just to say, just to you know, acknowledge that those are really, really important points, and and, it, and you're right that we should be talking about them more, and they should be more front and centre. Thank you very much. I think you did address a lot of the questions, and you raised some really interesting other points as well. Um, so, question from Brenda. I'm going to ask Dave to pick up. So. Um, what can Labour do to put more pressure on the government um, in terms of um, jobs, economy and the climate? And what kind of partnerships should we be building? Uh, uh, thank you, Celia. I mean, I mean, the first thing I think is to talk about it, and make it centre of, of, the, of the narrative. And, and it's good to hear uh, Matthew's promise. And I recognise that he and Ed Miliband don't stop talking about these issues. But the point is that's that's the the shadow secretary of state and the shadow minister and it needs to come from every member of the front bench in every speech and that, that's been part of the problem is that that compartmentalizing so it, it's the shadow minister for climate change that talks about climate change it needs to be every single shadow minister um and we will be watching i will be watching having identified that speech hopefully the message will go back from you that a lot of people have noticed the absence of uh, the environment and that speech and the absence of climate change and, and we'll keep watching those those future speeches but i, I think in, stuff can be done in opposition i know it must feel terribly depressing when you know you're not in government but well first of the opposition can raise the bar of expectation by championing those 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 policies and relentlessly harassing government on it secondly also i mean even though you can't overturn it's really hard to overturn uh, an 80 seat majority but it's not impossible and you and and you can see government quite significant government u-turns on policies by get by peeling off actually a relatively small number of uh of opposition backbenchers to join you in the lobbies because whips are terribly frightened that once 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 backbenchers start to rebel they get the habit of rebelling i'll, get, I'll give you an example of my, my own experience actually um was where when i was campaigning on the feed-in tariff a long time ago now 2000 2008 actually when labor was in government and uh, the conservatives were supporting the feed-in tariff in in opposition and actually uh, Alan Simpson uh, MP then organised a uh, a forty uh, a forty member rebellion uh, in favour of the feeding tariff on the Labour benches, uh, which was enough to 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 really frighten the whips and um, convince I think uh, significantly convince the leadership that they needed to move on this issue. So so you know being you don't have to overturn the government's majority in or, in order to in order to force them uh, in order to for, force their hand. So I think setting the bar high sets everybody's expectations. It sets the media's expectations. It sets it sets the the public's expectations. Uh, and if we don't hear it from 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 government, we get this kind of cognitive dissonance that that appears. When if you don't talk about something as if it's an emergency, then the public won't see it as an, an emergency. So I think those would be two things. Don't 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 lose don't lose hope. It is possible to over, overturn uh, majorities. Um, but also it's about where you're campaigning as well and where those alliances are so also to come back to this issue about about the environment being being a class issue you know it is terribly frustrating because throughout labor's history there have been huge kind of moves on the environment as a class issue you go people like you know you have in the labor movement you have william morris edward carpenter you have things like the clarion cyclists you know mass trespasses 
And we all will talk about the environment as being a class issue in terms of who it impacts, who dealing with environmental problems will benefit, but then there's a fear that it's only middle class people who talk about it. But that's not been our experience in organising the campaign around fracking. These were northern seats. These are northern seats actually that now make up the, the red wall seats that were the, the, that were the seats on the front line of fighting the anti-fracking industry where, where those communities were organised at a grassroots level. So I think part of it is the individual campaigns can organise people across class boundaries and can organise working class communities. But Matthew's right, the language and how you talk about it and not talking in esoteric terms um, does often uh, serve to serve to make make the whole issue less accessible thank you very much really really full answer there dave thank Peter, you can I, can I just jump in on that last one because just to answer just to add to dave and say to brenda sure. look, i think you know some people might look look, look boris is going to if, if i'm right and boris announces uh, the un general assembly that the government has ended overseas fossil fuel financing okay six billion pounds of which was channeled into oil and gas projects over, over the last decade. That will be in part, I know because the civil servants um, uh, talk to us uh, probably shouldn't do, but will it be in part by because we intervened and added to the calls of campaigners and others who've been calling that for a long time. Similarly with the electric vehicle phase out, some of you may have seen today, we've, we've strengthened actually the language in the manifesto which was to aim to phase out all petrol, petrol and diesel vehicles by 2030. We've called on a hard, a hard deadline for the government to do it. Again, adding to lots of people who have come before and some conservative MPs. But these things, I think, you know, I, I suppose it's just a case of, you know, smart, smart opposition when the government are in a weak position or already having an internal argument about some of these issues. And they are having debates internally about all these issues, partly because of COP, as I come back to again, and being seen to... Uh, you know, to deliver and be consistent and be a, a climate leader in the run up to that. We can, we can make some change. And then don't forget all of the stuff going on a local and regional metro level, which Labour, you know, in, in lots of places is doing stuff. And, you know, if we're to get to net zero, it's got to be locally driven and locally tailored. And there's lots of good stuff going on out there that's, you know, away from Westminster. It's not just about Westminster. Um, and we've got to talk more, actually, I have got to talk more. It's a little memo to myself about the you know, about what we're doing out there in the country where we are um, in power locally, regionally, that, you know, you know that, is, that is very, you know, progressive on this front. Thanks very much, Matthew. There are more hands up, but I'm afraid we've reached the point where uh, we've really run out of time. We're, we're nearly at 10 past eight now. Um, I'm going to, so I want to thank all the contributors for absolutely fantastic contributions tonight I think it's been a really really interesting meeting and it's just thrown up so many issues for us I think we need to have a part two please in in, in a month or two's time and see see where we are so maybe the environment group could consider sort of coming back and we, we can do it all again and see see what's moved forward and where we're still stuck um, I'm going to just hand over to Cridwen for a, a few minutes because I know she wants to say a few words about the climate and environment group um, before we say our, our final goodbyes. Thank you very much, Celia. I want to, on behalf of um, Helen, Brenda and myself who put this 
e evening together. Want to thank you very much for your chairing. It's uh, it's a demanding job, but I very particularly also want to thank our speakers and say, I think you've really challenged us. I think you've really made us think about what we can do as individuals and as part of the CLP. We're the largest CLP in the country. What we can do to take this message out. And I think that's a very important uh, lesson for all of us. Uh, you were all very good uh, and uh, we've learnt a lot. And we've, as Celia said, we've got to go on learning and taking these issues more seriously and speaking out to the wider public, not just in our own Labour Party. Thank you all. Thank you very much indeed, everyone. Thanks to the organisers, Brenda, Cridwin and Helen. It's been a fantastic meeting and I hope we can uh, continue the conversation and meet up again soon and hopefully in person next time rather than on a Zoom link and then Dave can actually come to North London rather than just doing so virtually. No, doesn't want to. <laughs> Great here, we've got lots of green space, Dave. You'd really like it. <laughs> Thanks, I'm, everyone. I'm, I'm um, to it. Great. Thanks, everyone. Have a good rest of the evening, and thanks very much for joining us tonight. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Sorry, the one person I forgot to thank and should have done is Anne. Anne oh, yes. Who, so did I. Who organised the Zoom for us and has done all the technical stuff this evening. So thanks very much to Anne. People leaving, yes, we're, we are losing people now. That's good. Thank you, Celia. And Anne, thank you. And we didn't thank you properly. We forgot the exigencies of time. So you've done a sterling job. I think everyone's left. Well done. Thank you. I'm so sorry about that, Caridwin. No, no, you you did fine. Don't worry. I mean, it's.